Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Wallner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. We've got a really interesting show for you all today. We have a treat for you all today. We are going to pick the speaker right here, right now, on this podcast. What do you think, Lee? Do we have that kind of power? Sure. It's in the Constitution, right? We, we get to choose the speaker? The first question is the speaker of what? But the speaker of the House. Yeah, I think we get to pick the... It says right there in like, what, Article 1, Section 18? Yeah, no, our, it's like Article 12 or something, I think, I think it's right? the 12th article. Yeah. The politics yeah. in question clause. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So, Lee, let's talk about the speaker, though, because it seems like the House... If you read the newspaper, if you listen to any kind of podcast about politics, if you get emails in your inbox with provocative subject lines getting you to click on them, it appears that the House is in a hot mess. What's happening right now? Well, we are recording this on Monday, October 16th, and it's been a week and a half since the motion to vacate passed. And the House has still not elected another speaker. Uh, there's some suggestion that by the time you listen to this, they may have a speaker. But we're in a moment in which we get to ask the big questions about what is the purpose of the House of Representatives anyway? And why does it need a speaker? Who is the House of Representatives for? Is it for the majority party? Is it for the majority of the members? Is it for our entertainment? Well, if you're a Senate staffer, I think the, the question to that, the answer to that question is quite clear. It's for uh, our entertainment, right? And it's for a, a place to divert the legions of tourists during the summer that descend upon the Capitol so that they can be over there. Yeah, it is It is closer to the metro, the Capital South Metro. So It is definitely closer. And, and for our listeners, if you've never been to Washington, D.C. before, one, you, you should go. It's a, it's a fabulous place. It's a, it's a beautiful city. Number two, the distances. And I guess the Portuguese minister during the Jackson administration uh, back in the 19th century called it the city of magnificent distances. But it's the distances, they can be misleading. It looks like Union Station's just right across the street from the Senate, but it's a, it's a bit of a walk. And when it's 130,000% humidity, that little bit of walk can really make a difference between like a good, pleasant experience and kind of a frustrating and annoying yeah. experience. Stay inside Union Station and have the iced coffee at Blue Bottle. I think we're, yeah. are we a travel podcast now? This is good. I like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I think you're avoiding the question here. You sound like a real senator here, filibustering. What is the House for? Well, it seems clear to me. We've forgotten this because we see Congress as a factory. And so from that simple assumption, lots of things flow that end up distorting reality and leading to the kinds of coverage and takes that we see today that if the House can't pick a speaker, it's the end of the world. Or if a rank and file member uses a rule and there is a vote and the side with the most vote wins, that's just the end of democracy as we know it. Because when you see the Congress as a factory, it becomes about outcomes and you end up losing sight of what the Congress actually is. And, and the factory foreman, in this case, the speaker, is is critical if you see it as a factory again. So what what, what is the Congress? Well, Congress is just a place. It's a place okay. where the people venue. we go that we elect go to argue with one another, to adjudicate our concerns and make collective decisions. 
That's the point of Congress. It's a place where an activity, in our case, the activity of self-government happens at the end of the day. That's all it is. And, and what happens there can look different at different points in time. Different actors, different people can be more or less powerful at different points in time. But the most important thing, the takeaway about Congress is simply that it is the place where we send people that we hire our representatives to work on our behalf to make collective decisions in this nation. Because after all, we don't have rulers here. We do it ourselves, but we all have day jobs. So therefore, we need to get other people to do it for us. Right. Division of labor. So you make it sound so simple, James, but really the process by which we make the rules in in the House determines the outcomes, right? I mean, so much is about the process, so much is about the procedure, and depending on how bills come to the floor and how committees are, are set up and under what rules things come to the floor, you, you wind up with different outcomes. So here, I think we can spend a little bit of time taking our listeners on a history journey to think about the many ways in which the U.S. House has operated over 200 years. And I wonder if anybody knows who the first Speaker of the House was, and there's no reason that anybody would. I bet you know, James. Old Augustus Conrad? Frederick Augustus Conrad Muhlenberg? Oh, yeah. Seems like a nice guy, right? He cast the deciding vote to locate the Capitol, if I recall correctly, in D.C. So there we go. Right. That was like basically the only thing he did. He mostly just sat around and maintained decorum and let James Madison run the place. You, you know the classic rhyme about his uh, his mootness in the chamber, right? Don't you? Fred Augustus, God bless his red nose and fat head, has little more influence than a speaker of lead. Every I did not child. know that. Oh, That's awesome. I, yeah, thought every every child learns that, All right? But so, I mean, the 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 first speaker of the house just kind of like was essentially a presiding officer. And in the Constitution, there's not much about the role of the speaker. It just says the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers, and shall have the sole power of impeachment. That's Article One, Section Two, Clause Five. For those of you following along with your home Constitution. And so it says, okay, you just got to have a speaker. I, I don't know what the framers were thinking about the role of the speaker. Probably not a whole lot. Just there's got to be like one person who just kind of directs the flow of traffic. They might have looked at the British House of Commons, which also had a speaker who was essentially just a presiding officer. And that was kind of how the, the speaker operated mostly for the, the first two decades occasionally casting a deciding vote, occasionally entering the fray, but mostly just making sure everything was happening. But of course, Congress uh, yeah, was still a, a somewhat sleepy place. Then along comes our friend Henry Clay, who who kind of transforms the speakership, right? He's kind of a one-of-a-kind person. What do we know about Henry Clay? Well, I, I want to take a step back, though, quickly and talk about the notion of leadership, because I think embedded in what you were just saying is a really important point which is there is no one right way to lead the Congress. There's no one right way to lead it. There's no one right way to organize it. And it has been led and organized differently over the course of its history. I think what we know, if we return to this idea of the Congress, in this case, the House, is a place where people go to participate in an activity, that's a collective decision-making process. And anyone who has participated in any kind of collective decision-making process, even if it's just picking a family movie, on a Friday night, knows how frustrating that can be and how hard it can be. So you need leaders to help facilitate 
that process. People you hire internally to do a job for you, the rank and file members. Um, and those leaders have looked differently over time. In the first Congress, we can refer to them as men or individuals of exceptional ability. And James Madison, during the first federal Congress, is clearly the leader. And he has, you know, he will be on committees. He may chair some of these ad hoc committees, but committee leaders really aren't a thing at this point because we don't have standing committees. We don't have the kind of committee system we have today to create these places and uh, locations of leadership for committee chairmen. But you do have the Speaker of the House. And we see briefly, where power really transfers from these individuals of exceptional ability in the House to, to the Speaker. And this is Henry Clay, right? Henry Clay is a very dynamic individual, and he is elected Speaker, I think, what is it, in his first term? And he becomes a very uh, powerful Speaker, but not necessarily in the sense that we think of it today. But he used the speakership to really to populate committees with individuals that agreed with him to help the war effort in the War of 1812. Um, interventionist type economic policies, all of those types of things. Clay used the speakership as a as a platform to project power to achieve those goals. But then again, he wasn't in the House for very long. He then leaves and goes back and goes to the Senate. Right. So he's not around for a long time. And after he's gone, the speakership recedes more into a marginal role and the committee system starts to expand. And so by 1885, you have uh, the political scientist Woodrow Wilson. Yes, that Woodrow Wilson, who writes this book called Congressional Government, which is really one of the first books of political science as political science. And the memorable takeaway line from that book is Congress in its committee rooms is Congress at work, which is this idea that you have all these standing committees that are doing legislation. However, Wilson is not very happy with the way this is going. As an observer, he thinks it's chaotic. He thinks what we need is more responsible party government, more leadership. All these committees are fighting each other over who gets the floor. And soon enough, you have Thomas Brackett Reed, who in 1890 uh, takes over as the Republican speaker and passes the eponymous Reed rule. So what, what, what's going on there? Why is, why is Thomas Reed getting all this power to, to run Congress and the speakership? What's, what's going on in 1890? Good old Reed is really, the, I think, the starting point for uh, our kind of modern conception of a powerful speaker. I do want to go back to something you just said, though, about committees fighting each other for the floor. We have this like built-in bias uh, sometimes that if there isn't a strong leader, if there isn't someone in charge, then it's just chaos. And the evidence, just look at the paper about anything that has to do with the House right now. It's just chaos. This, uh, on one hand, underscores the importance of a leader and leadership when we make collective decisions, because it is important. But lawmakers had developed a system to deal with that chaos. Yes, committee chairmen were the locations of power. That was where a lot of the power resided. You would have momentary rises of individuals of exceptional ability as well. And they're all grappling with outside events as they impact the chamber along the way. But the parties themselves develop in the House and the Senate, they develop structures to negotiate amongst the committee chairman and the rank and file to prioritize bills for uh, floor consideration. There are lots of different processes that the Republicans and Democrats have on the books to help them do the job that we think can't be done without the leader. And uh, the shift in our understanding of how Congress works and, and Congress as a place where an activity happens 
to a factory where we're building widgets, I think really we can not date it to um, to speaker read, although of course you can never really say this is the point, but Reed was a very powerful speaker because he was able to convince the Republican rank and file that a productive house would make it more likely that they would win re-election. And he used that to unify the Republican rank and file behind a more heavy-handed approach to the speakership. And he instituted the what we know as the Reed's rules, like you've uh, like you referenced. And these are things like ending the disappearing quorum. So the Constitution says you have to have a quorum to do business. And whenever the majority party would go to call a vote in the House during Reed's tenure in the late 19th century, and this is a period when absenteeism is actually quite high in the Congress, the majority can rarely produce the votes alone needed to uh, to have a quorum. And so the minority, or at least a, a, a portion of that minority party, would refuse to call, would refuse to answer to their names when the roll was called. And then there wouldn't be a quorum and the House couldn't do business. But they would be sitting right there in the chair. You could look out and see them. And so one day, Reed just decides that he's going to start counting them. And when he says, oh, well, Lee Drupman, are you here? And you don't say anything. He's like, no, I see you, Lee. Never mind. You're right there. I got you. And when you rise to protest, he's like, oh, so are you saying you're not here or are you here? And this simple change really crushed uh, minority obstruction as we knew it in the House up to that point. But it really signaled a shift towards a more powerful speaker. He also stopped entertaining dilatory motions on the House floor. And how do you know if something's dilatory? Well, if you're the speaker and someone makes a motion and you think it's dilatory, then it by definition is dilatory. So you can see the change and how all of a sudden we have a more powerful individual and leadership really starts to slowly, although it doesn't happen overnight and we have strong committee chairman for a very long time after this, really starts to shift towards that stronger party leader or institutional leader in the speaker. Right. And this is a moment in which the Republican Party and the parties generally are a bit more unified. Partisanship is very high. And there's these uh, very close elections year after year. So there's a real desire among Republicans to, to vest power in a strong leader who can help them to coordinate so they keep coming back to Congress. So it's not that Reed comes out of nowhere and enforces his will on the chamber. It's that he solves a problem for a lot of Republican members of Congress who actually want a strong leader at that moment. So there's a period of strong leadership. And then we get to 1910, which is the kind of next critical moment in which Joseph Cannon, who is following along with Thomas Reed and is applying the same czar-like approach to running the chamber, he gets ousted by a bunch of folks within his own party, insurgent Republicans, who are very organized. They come from this progressive Republicans from, uh, from Iowa and Wisconsin and Nebraska. They're sort of a, a cabal of Midwestern progressives. They spend a lot of time planning this out. They're really annoyed with, with Cannon because he, he doesn't give them any opportunity to get their legislation to the floor. He cuts them out of everything. And they have real concerns because they think Cannon is too in with the big banks and not caring about the farmers. So this group of insurgent Republicans, they buy their time, they plot things, and then through some procedural complications, 
sophisticated mechanisms. They are able to work with Democrats to basically strip Kennan of his power over the Rules Committee and set up a, a new way in which you can bring legislation to the floor, basically by taking power away from the Speaker and moving it back to committees and individual members. And this is a moment in which some people have uh, looked back upon in this current period and say, oh, you know, there's a, there's a precedent for this. There was a moment in which the speaker got ousted by a cross-partisan coalition, the same way that the speaker got ousted by a cross-partisan coalition in 2023. However, I, I think the, the, the big difference is that this 1910 ouster was a very deliberate and strategic attempt by a really tight group of members who were in many ways a, a sort of party within a party, and they were really working with Democrats to, to get this done, uh, yet they wanted to maintain themselves as Republicans. So I'm, I'm not sure how far the similarities go, but I, I do think that what these moments do have in common is that when the speakership becomes too powerful, there is dissent and members don't like not having any power and not having any say in how the chamber runs. Well, none of this is surprising, right? right? I think the important thing is that you had members who used their leverage to change the leader, the speaker in this case. And 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 with Cannon, they didn't necessarily oust him as so much as just reduced his powers significantly, uh, basically neutered him, if you will, um, or his power, I should say. Right. But that's, that's, if this isn't surprising, if we go back to this idea of the house, it's just a, it's just a big room. Think of it that way. It's just a big old room. And it's the place where we send the people we vote for to do our business on our behalf. And then they hire people once they're all there because either the constitution says they need to, but more importantly, because they have a job to do and they want to take steps to make that job easier. So they may create committees. They may have committee chairmen to help manage that process, just like any large organization. And then they're going to put someone in the speakership and the speaker has a job to do. And Reed showed how that job, because the environment was changing around Reed and you had a skillful individual that was in a position at, a, at the right moment who could then capitalize on that and transform that position. And then that position was seen in a certain way. Well, you have then Joe Cannon come in as, the, as a very powerful speaker who inherits a lot of what Reed was able to set in motion. But he comes into a different moment at a different point in time with a different set of issues on the agenda. And all of a sudden, the people who hire the speaker to do a job may not be necessarily happy with how that speaker is doing that job. And if there's no effort to uh, compromise or to negotiate along the way, then those individuals, those members are going to use whatever leverage they have to correct that situation. Because after all, that's what they're there for. And so I think it is entirely similar. I think the outcome itself is, is, is irrelevant in terms of understanding the institutional dynamics. And the institutional dynamics simply is that individuals are likely to force their leadership to change or to change the location of their leadership at different points in time when the current way of doing business doesn't serve their needs. And we see this again in the mid 20th century, getting ahead of ourselves when we transition away from strong committee chairs back towards a strong speakership. And it's precisely because you have rank and file 
members, lawmakers, in this case, Democrats and more liberal Democrats, who aren't really happy with the current structure and say, what can we do to change it? And they look around, they're like, oh, let's get a strong speaker again, because that will help us vis-a-vis these strong committee chairmen. And so there's no, again, it's like, it's not like there's a right way. It's just constantly changing. It's always in flux. Right. Indeed, everything is a reaction to the previous moment and whatever arrangement uh, exists in one moment creates problems that a new moment has to respond to. So to your point, Lee, just the reforms that we saw come out of the revolution of 1910 and also the cross-party coalitions in the 1920s that held up the election of uh, Speaker Gillette. These reforms are the things that democratized the House, made it more egalitarian, led to regular order, led to a more robust committee process, more deliberation in the panels, and stronger committee chairmen. These are the very reforms that I think many people say the House should go back to when they talk about going back to regular order as a way to correct the current dysfunction. And I find it very interesting. And I mentioned this in a previous episode as well. I find it very interesting. In fact, I find it odd. It's that these reforms were created by the same kind of cross-party coalition. This environment was created by the idea of a rump group of one party saying, we're not happy with the way our speaker's doing things, and then basically voting with the other party on the floor to change it. And, right. and that yet today, that somehow is the end of democracy or where it's, it, make, it highlights our how dysfunctional we are. But at the same time, we then say, well, that we need to go back to this other way of doing business that was made possible by that very thing. Right. So to the extent that the folks who brought down McCarthy are really serious about decentralizing the process and working with Democrats, I think that would be great. And you know, th- think about some of the re- you mentioned 1923, 1924, right? You have in ni- December 1923, again, you have this rump group of progressive Republicans who hold the balance of power and they're not happy with the the leadership of the Republican Party. They work with Democrats to pass a rule in, in the following January in which you have a discharge petition that only requires 150 votes. And if if you get 150 votes, it becomes the first order of business uh, two Mondays per month. Uh, so it, they're trying to get progressive legislation to the floor in opposition to the conservative committee and floor leaders. Now, what, what, what is different, and I think is, you know, to, to me, there, there is a real difference here in that the insurgents were you know, essentially from the middle, although I, I almost hesitate to call that the middle, because then in 1925, Nick Longworth, Republicans have a much bigger majority. N- n- the charming Nick Longworth uh, becomes speaker. He, he reinvigorates the speakership and, and he collaborates with the, the Democrat, John Nance Garner, who's the, the, the Democratic leader in the House at, this, at the time, later to become Roosevelt's VP. And you know, they're both pretty conservative, and the GOP is trying to punish the insurgent progressive Republicans, GOP leadership, by working with conservative Democrats. So there's this kind of weird multidimensional 
thing going on. And you know, maybe that's what we need, more multidimensional coalitions that don't really fit the, the Democrat-Republican binary that we have today. It's certainly why I'm enthusiastic about opening up the party system, because uh, I think we need something like that again. But what you see is that depending on the margins uh, within the chamber, a small group can have leverage or not. Right. I mean, the thing that the other thing that's 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 similar to today is actually this is this is where we get more to 19, the 1931 uh, move to to bring back the discharge petition in which Congress is basically tied. Republicans start out with a narrow majority, then a couple special elections. Democrats get back the majority, but it, there's uh, again you can have a small group that says, "Hey, we want to have a discharge." petition process because we want the chamber to be run by the majority of the members, not the majority party. Well, you have to have these small groups, especially in a place like the House. And to go back to 1923, in the Washington Post in 1923, it described what was happening when you had this cross-party coalition. And it references the La Follette insurgents, and that's after Robert La Follette junior uh, Republican of Wisconsin, who was the progressive leader. And it says that forming a band about of about 25 who declare they will stand by their guns through thick and thin, these insurgents issued an ultimatum to the regular Republicans after a long session yesterday. They formulated an elaborate platform and say they will not permit the election of a speaker or the organization of the House until their demands have been met. And ultimately, they did have their demands met, at least in part. But I think the clear takeaway here is that without organization, some sort of um, smaller intra-party group structure, without organization and without a, a very powerful or not powerful, but with a capable leader, in this case, um, not the speaker, but in this case, uh, La Follette, or think like, say, Jim Jordan uh, when he's in the Freedom Caucus or Mark Meadows is the Freedom Caucus chairman. It is unlikely that a minority, right, of the House's members are ever going to be able to prevail in in these debates. It's really that group structure that ultimately allows them to prevail, and we see that is in common today. The Freedom Caucus has certainly uh, shown us the power of of an intraparty group. Going back to the early the mid twentieth century, we have the Democratic Study Group and um, liberal Democrats showing us how powerful intraparty groups can be. The Republican Study Committee, maybe to a lesser degree, in the nineteen seventies in 80s. So that certainly is is the same. I think it, it highlights the importance of these intraparty uh, factions. And maybe the progressive faction of the Democrats will do something similar moving forward. Because every time you do this once, then people look at it and go, oh, that worked. And then they do it. And then they do it again. That's what we're seeing right now with the speakership race. But right. one thing that's different I, before we get to that speakership race, I think that's really different about this, though, is that you get this sense when you go back and look at these earlier battles that these members, these lawmakers thought the rules mattered, that they were battling over things of consequence. And if to the extent that they're using the election of, of leaders, of speakers as leverage to get what they want, to change the rules, it's because they think the rules matter, because they're participating in a process that would be impossible without some rules to empower lawmakers to participate in it. Today, I get the sense that when we think about all of the drama surrounding the speakership, surrounding leadership elections in general, it's not that you know we have this assumption that the rules matter. It's because we have this assumption that that's our person. They agree with us. And if we get them in this position, then we're going to 
get all we want, that they're going to make the right policy decisions and the outcomes are going to be what we want. And that's a very different thing. That's a more of a factory oriented mindset. And I think it's one that's destined to fail. Well, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here that I think regardless of whether it's putting our person in charge or changing the procedure so that we decentralize power, the idea is that the process matters, the procedure matters, and if we can get the procedure right, we're going to win. So when you have these moments in which you're trying to decentralize the chamber and there are insurgent groups that are trying to take power out of leadership, it's because they believe that they would win on the floor if they got a chance to bring their policy there to the floor. So it's all about the outcomes. The procedures determine the outcomes. It's just that depending on how power is located and where power is located, you wind up with different outcomes because different bills are allowed to come to the floor. And that's it's fundamentally, I mean, all, all of these fights, whether they're over the speakership or the rules committee, which determines what gets to the floor or the role of committees or the ability of individual members to bring bills to the floor or the role of the discharge petition and allowing members to sign a petition to bring bills to the floor. It's about access to the floor because individual members and organized groups have ideas about what they think will happen if they get a vote on on their preferred policy outcomes, right? Like nobody goes to the floor to lose. Right. Well, but this is the difference, right? We're talking about goals. They have goals. And if you have the mentality of outcomes, like we're building this widget and nobody goes to the floor to lose, you don't do anything until you are guaranteed victory. And that's a very hard thing. to Or, or not guaranteed victory, but think you're going to win, right? You're, you're structuring the process in a way that you think you're going to get the outcome that you want. This is how we, usually the leaders will get the rank and file to, to stand down, especially their outliers. So Pelosi is telling AOC with the Green New Deal, what are you doing this for? You're going to endanger our moderates. It's never going to be signed into law. It, we have no chance whatsoever of this actually becoming law. So don't act. Don't do this, right? But I think if we go back to it's not just about in that moment, it's over time. Of course, it's goal-driven behavior. And if we think about liberal Democrats who transformed the House and really took power from the committee chairman and empowered their party leaders and specifically the Speaker of the House to take a larger role in the process uh, to help balance out the committee chairman who were very Southern and, and conservative on and opposed them on issues like uh, segregation and ending uh, Jim Crow segregation in the South, among other policies. It wasn't that they thought that they were going to win right then, but they wanted to create an opportunity for themselves to fight. They wanted to have the opportunity to show their constituents because they didn't think that necessarily they're going to win re-election if they don't, if they just sit on their hands all day long. They wanted to have debates on the floor over civil rights. Yes, maybe because they think they can pass it in the House, but not necessarily because they think it's going to become law in that moment. But they know that doing that then one, may help them win re-election. Two, it may be the right thing to do. And three, it makes it more likely over time that that goal of theirs will ultimately be enacted into law. So I think it's all of it kind of wrapped up together. I think that the difference is when we talk about outcomes, all of these other things kind of go away. And it's just like only things that it's like we rationalize. So yeah, an open debate is great as long as it gets us the outcome we want. If it doesn't get us the outcome we want, then the open debate's not great. 
And right. it's, that's a different kind of calculation, I think, than what lawmakers have made in the past. But I agree, of course, they had goals. And of course, they were acting and changing the rules as a way to achieve those goals. But today we see the rules. In fact, today we see the House and Senate floors as just an obstacle, as, as a burden. It's like the last stop. We have this perfect little thing that we have made and God, now we got to go over there and get boats and stuff. Right. Versus so I, not as a place where we kind of engage in this activity and what happens, happens. Right. So, I mean, I think that what's happened is that we've confused means and ends, right? That that the the, the process is a means to, to some goal, but the process, controlling the process has has itself become a, an end. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. Now, now I'm just confused. Means, goals, When you have ends. means and ends, rules don't matter because you can rationalize any breaking of the rules as long as it's needed to get your end. And then you aren't going to allow your opponents to do the same because they have different ends. Like, so when you think about Congress in terms of means and ends, means and ends is just another way of saying production, of making things, of building cars on a factory line. That's a means and ends process. When you think of Congress like that, the rules itself, the things that these members were battling over, the things that we saw change and oscillate over time when speakers became more or less powerful, all of that becomes almost like irrelevant, is kind of is not meaningful. It just comes down to who can win the vote in that particular moment, in that particular time. And I think that's all a right. big problem, part of the problem we have today. So let, let's 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 keep going on the history here. So uh, we're, we're in the 1930s. Democrats win tremendous majorities in the mid-30s. But by 1937, it's a classic Democrats in disarray story. The conservatives within the Democratic coalition are holding up some of FDR's programs. And the Rules Committee gets taken over by the conservatives who are actually working across party lines. And 1940s, 1950s, you have this period in which Congress is really governed in a very bipartisan way, in a sense, despite Democrats having these overwhelming majorities, because you have a bunch of conservative Democrats who are working with Republicans a lot of the time. And a lot of the conservative Republicans are quite happy to make this arrangement work because it's actually serving their policy goals and they don't really care about getting more Republicans in Congress because ideology and partisanship are quite delinked in this moment that there are conservative Democrats, liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, liberal Republicans. And as long as they can control the rules committee and a bunch of committee chairmanships, they're basically controlling Congress. But as you foreshadowed just before, this starts to become intolerable to Democrats, particularly liberal Democrats. And there are tremendous attempts to try to find ways around the Rules Committee. In 61, they vote to expand the Rules Committee uh, because uh, Judge uh, Howard Smith, a conservative Democrat from Virginia, is holding up civil rights legislation. And then you know, eventually we get to the to the 70s when uh, we have a moment in which liberal Democrats are uh, really chafing at the conservatives. They kick a couple of the conservative committee chairman out. They developed the subcommittee Bill of Rights, which creates all these subcommittees so li new liberal Democrats can have a role in Congress of this period in which the floor becomes kind of chaotic and unpredictable. Although, you know, again, because things are chaotic and unpredictable doesn't mean that they are bad. In fact, we get a lot of creative legislative entrepreneurship during this period, but we get a lot of surprises. And if there's one thing that members of Congress don't always love, 
its surprises. So this leads to a desire to give the speakership more power, to give Tip O'Neill and then Jim Wright more control to help liberal Democrats control the floor to get the policies they want. This makes conservative Democrats mad, makes Republicans especially mad. And so eventually Newt Gingrich harnesses this anger. And when he becomes speaker, he centralizes power even more. What did I leave out there? This shift, though, isn't because it was chaotic, right? It wasn't like they woke up and they're like, whoa, what's going on here? Like, right? It wasn't because up is down and down is up, etc. It was because you have to have effective leadership somewhere in a collective body that makes decisions on the basis of equality, like the House. And so if it's not working in committee chairmanship, in the committee chairs, you need another source of leadership. And it turns out you have one. I mean, the Constitution says you have to have a speaker. They had speakers. They had Sam Rayburn was a very popular speaker, not necessarily powerful like we think of today. But this is a ready-made kind of entity that can be empowered to help counterbalance the power of conservative Southern Democrats on the committees and in committee chairmanships. And so I think we got to think of it in those terms, because that's really what motivated, at least as I see it, this shift towards a more powerful speaker. And it was because they wanted to uh, empower the, you know, the speakers of the 70s and then Tip O'Neill in particular in the 80s um, to help, yes, lend order to the floor. But the whole reason they needed to lend order to the floor was because the committees were kind of receding in the policymaking process. The party itself was coming into the foreground and they were empowering the speaker in particular and all of the party leaders to help preside over that process to help facilitate their participation in it. Look, none of this stuff makes any sense if you think of the rules as something that's imposed on the members. None of this stuff makes sense if you think of a leader as something that is a position that controls the members. The rules empower the rank and file to, to do their job as they see fit. And they then hire leaders to go about doing that job for them. And they don't always like kick them out when they don't do that job. There's lots of different reasons why. But that basic relationship, I think, is key. And if you if we have that understanding, it makes it's not that surprising why Gingrich is ultimately forced out. It's not that surprising why uh, McCarthy is ultimately forced out, albeit via different mechanisms, admittedly. But it's because the rank and file, the true boss of, you know, if we had to say who's the boss of the Senate, we'd say, you know, Bruce Springsteen. And if he's not around, then we would say all of the rank and file are because they're all equal. And so I think if we want to understand the House, we have to get comfortable with this disequilibrium. I don't like using like big old long words like that, but it's not supposed to always make sense. It's not supposed to look the same and it's not supposed to be steady and predictable. If it is, we're doing it wrong. And also, I mean, the 60s and 70s was a period of legislative productivity that the Congress has not, to my knowledge, met or exceeded in its history. Right. And that was a, an incredibly unstable period in the organization of the House. So this idea that somehow stability means that our institutions are working, uh, I, I think you're right. It, it is a confusion that thing. This, this is a dynamic process. With each chamber, the body changes. New members enter. Old members leave. And this is actually the period that we're in now. 
has been one of the highest turnover periods. I, I was you know, looking at the turnover rate in Congress. And in 2021, the previous Congress, the percentage of Republicans who had been there for at least six terms was the lowest it had been in 75 years. So there's, particularly within the Republican caucus, there's just been tremendous turnover. Democratic caucus has also had pretty high turnover. So th there's a lot of new members who are now starting to be around for a few years and said, hey, we know we've had this strong speaker model for a long time, but maybe we want to do something different, right? Except the, the, the challenge is, and I think this is the case in these particularly partisan, polarized, and evenly matched elections, is that, you know, Nancy Pelosi says, hey, you know, do you guys like gavels? Well, empower me and I'll, I'll do my best to keep you here. Yeah, same thing going on the Republican side, right? Gavels are not as valuable as they once I, were I, I precisely know, right? because they're trying to win to keep them. Exactly, right? So they're not doing anything with them other than trying to preserve them. And so it's it's this it's this very strange moment, I think, in which you have quite high turnover, one of the closest margins in any Congress. I think the the only time there was a closer margin was 1931 unless I'm forgetting some year, right? I mean, that was 31 was was basically tied, although it went from a slight R, R lead to a slight D lead. And that close Congress, you know, gives a small rump group power. I mean, the moments in which progressive insurgents in you know, 1910 and 1923 and 1931 had the most power were in Congresses where, where the margin was, was pretty thin. I think the margin itself, yeah, it matters, but our fixation on the margin being thin, making this more likely, I think obscures the really important point, which isn't that the margin's thin, it's that the party is divided internally, right? It makes no difference how thin the margin is if the party is really divided and can't unify internally on a policy or a way of doing business or a way of managing the chamber. I think that's the really important thing. And so it could, yes, it makes it easier, I think, if there are critics of the party, but the eight who vote against McCarthy aren't his only critics. And so I think when we focus on that margin question and the mechanism by which this is kind of put into action, and by this, I mean, kind of getting rid of a speaker or using your leverage, we overlook the, I think, a more important point, which is a more important substantive point, which is the thing that makes this possible is not the margin but the internal divisions in the parties. And that those internal divisions run counter to this kind of idea of polarization that we've had for a very long time. And people will say, what's next? Where do we go from here? I, the House has already changed. The House has, in my opinion, has already changed. It changed the moment the Freedom Caucus was formed. It changed the moment Mark Meadows put the uh, motion to vacate for Boehner and the hopper and flexed its muscles. It, it changed when the Freedom Caucus prior to that forced Boehner to, to walk back uh, his punishment of Meadows and others, other conservatives by taking them off of committees. It changed when they forced the House to shut down the government over Obamacare and defunding Obamacare. It's like it changed when Paul Ryan leaves the office of speaker and retires because he doesn't want to face a motion to vacate either. Ryan had to basically 
interview for the job. Kevin McCarthy tried to get the job at the time, and he went to the Freedom Caucus. They went to the moderate, the moderate Republicans, and they're interviewing much in the same way that committee chairmen were interviewing for their jobs with the Nixon babies, the Watergate babies of 1974, this huge liberal Democratic class of freshman House members. And the and the chairman that you mentioned who lost their jobs are those that didn't show up. They didn't want, they're like, we don't care what you think. And well, it turns out that you need their votes to be a, to be a chairman. And they didn't get their votes when you treat them with contempt because they don't work for you. You work for them. That's the whole point of a committee. And so the House has changed. Now, like what it looks like exactly, I'm not sure, but I but I think it's it looks like you have a you know powerful committee. I mean, uh, party leaders like we've seen for a while, party powerful speakers, but you also have these rump groups, these intra-party factions, and these factions wield significant power. And if they're willing to use that power internally when they have the leverage to do so, they can really affect who the speaker is. They can affect how the house operates. They can affect what the house even does. And I think that's really the the kind of, if I have to squint and stand on one foot and turn my head sideways, I'd say that's what really is going to characterize House decision-making moving forward. It's a, a speakership that isn't as weak as some of the past speakerships that we've seen. It's still powerful, but it, it works with these, uh, if you want to be at least successful, I think, works with these intra-party factions prior to a floor vote, for instance, and to develop policies, get them bought in, and then ultimately put something on the floor versus today what they do or what they've done up until recently is they wait until the last minute they put something on the floor and dare these you know these rump groups to to defeat it either it's AOC and the progressives or it's uh you know it's maybe it's the Jim Jordan and the Freedom Caucus whoever that is and so i think a more deliberative process maybe not necessarily on the house floor but certainly um, between the leaders of these groups and the leadership of the House itself. And the Democrats are watching this. And if when they are next in the majority, I would not be surprised if the progressives flex their muscles in the same way. Well, as we all know, your your standing on one foot trick was actually the part of the interview for for being on this podcast. So I'm glad you you did pass that. But here's my question. And this is something that I, I don't quite understand about what the Freedom Caucus is up to here. On the one hand, I'm all for a more decentralized process in which committees have space to deliberate, in which there there's a more open floor process, in which there is a, a chance for a lot of different votes. But ultimately, when I look at the history of all of these rules changes and all these organizational changes uh, in Congress, they've all basically involved trying to figure out how the majority of the chamber can govern in moments in which it seemed like there was a minority that was ruling over a majority. So in the dethroning of Cannon's power, Cannon was ruling for a minority when there was a insurgent progressive Republican plus Democrats majority. In the expanding of the Rules Committee in the 1960s, there was a sense that a small minority was using the Rules Committee to hold up what a majority wanted. Now, it seems like the Freedom Caucus is at the fringe of the Republican Party and they are opposed by a majority in the chamber. So it seems like they actually shouldn't want a more open process. They should want to control the Republican Party with a narrow majority and then have the Republican Party be run for 
a minority. But tell tell me what I'm getting wrong here. Two things, and I maybe unpack what the Freedom Caucus. And I can't speak. I mean, one, it's not a Freedom Caucus that has these thoughts. They're individual members, right? But ultimately, the progressive uh, Republicans who partnered with Democrats with the support of a progressive president, Teddy Roosevelt, in the Revolution of 1910, it wasn't like they woke up in the morning and said, we want to have the majority of the chamber run this thing. No, they were like, we got this view. We want to enact this policy. And and they're looking around. How do we do that? Well, it turns out we got a president in the White House that is going to bolster us. And we got a lot of people across the aisle who also agree with us. So maybe we should do that. So it's not a commitment to kind of majoritarianism per se. It's lawmakers using leverage to win, which ultimately is, I think, what it's all about. It's not ideal, I mean, I guess, but ultimately, if we want a very dynamic process, that's what it's about. And when we think about the Freedom Caucus, I think we need to also go back to liberal Democrats in the civil rights era, who we accept, we can see that liberal Democrats have constituents who want them to act who want them to try, who want them to try to win on civil rights. We all agree. We can say, yes, that's uh, that was a key motivating factor. And that they wanted to try, they wanted to have the opportunity to have a debate on civil rights because they think they're ultimately going to win. Maybe not in that particular moment, but certainly over time, the more they debate it, the more they expose this idea, the more socialized it will become, the more members will support it because the more the American people are going to support it. And I'm not sure why it's impossible for the Freedom Caucus to think the same thing. And I think the rank and file Freedom Caucus, I think most Freedom Caucus members, at least the ones that I've spoken to in my, you know, in my experience on Capitol Hill, there is a firm conviction that on certain policies that they can do better than they're doing now because the American people are with them, their constituents are with them, and therefore you're going to get more Democrats and more Republicans join them on these policies, not on everything. And it's not a guarantee and it's not a certainty, but there is this conviction that if we just have a chance to fight, that we are going to do better than we're doing now. And and the reason why they think that is because the way that the process is organized now is precisely to make it look like they're fighting, but not to fight, not to try. And they think that the process, and I think this is not unique to them, it's conservatives in the Senate as well, that the process is managed to prevent those votes from coming up because the more establishment-minded members may oppose them on policy grounds or because they don't want to divide their own party and protect really moderate Republicans, for instance. This is the Nancy Pelosi argument with AOC with regard to the Democrats and the Green New Deal. Or they don't want to give the Democrats a win. They don't want Democrats to cross over. Whatever it may be, there's a disagreement about how the chamber is run And I think that if we think it's legitimate for liberals, and I don't think people generally criticize or or second guess or think it's cynical for liberal Democrats to oppose conservative committee chairmen who are using their power to bottle up civil rights legislation, like it's not surprising that they would want a different way of doing business, even though they can't guarantee. In fact, they know they're not going to win in the moment, but they still want another way of doing business. Whereas today, if a conservative Republican wants to, you know, change fiscal policy or change immigration policy or change any other kind of policy. It's like, why are they doing that? They know they're just going to lose. And I'm not saying this way, but this is the kind of assumption. And, I, and I'm and i not sure it's one fair and or accurate. Well, I think that is certainly reasonable. And this isn't a, I mean, I'm just using it as a foil, but I, there's, a, there's this view that the Freedom Caucus is dumb. Like, what are they doing out there? No, I, I, I don't I don't think they're dumb. But the assumption is if they only knew that they could never win, they would realize that this is all folly. They're wasting their time. 
and it's just creating chaos and preventing us from building our widgets. And I think that that mentality, I'm not saying you have that mentality, but that is that is the kind of subtext of the kind of commentary that says the Freedom Caucus somehow, like, what are they doing? They can't win. But like that, that misses the point that the Congress isn't a place where you, you know, in that instance, it's like they can't build their product. That's what we're saying. Right. So I, it's a place I, and they want to go and they want to do their job in that right, place. Right. They so participate. I, right. So I, I, I think the, the, the view is that all, all they want to do is just muck things up, create chaos for for their own celebrity. So I mean, oh, that, that, progressives were doing in the 1910s. Right, right. Like well, La, exactly. La That's what they said about La Follette. That's sure, what the status quo always says about people who challenge it. They right, try right. to discredit no, that, the status that's, quo. That's fair. Uh, you know, I mean, they they were they were publicity hounds. They used the press. They used the media. They used an outside strategy. You have uh, to. You can't win just on the inside because you're outnumbered. Right. You got to go outside. Uh, so I I think it's. It's an honest position to say, you know, look, we genuinely want to have a more open process. We want to make it easier to get to the floor, so we should support a liberalized discharge petition. We want to we want a decentralized power. We want committees to have more access to the floor. We want more things to come to the floor under an open rule. And we're willing to lose as long as we get out there and fight. And I think that's may- maybe what some folks have said, but I think that's not the story that seems to be getting out there in the coverage that I'm reading. And maybe it's because I'm reading the wrong coverage, which, you know, could, well, I think could, the coverage is bad. I mean, I think it could be the look, case. Look at John Boehner. You know, he's forced out. He resigns voluntarily, but he's forced out. He doesn't have the votes. There's a meeting with right. Boehner and, and Jordan Meadows. He asks him to not push the vote. They say no. He retires. Right. Prior to that. And there's all this animosity and bad blood there. But people overlook the fact that prior to that, John Boehner was the Speaker of the House during the shutdown. And House Republicans coming out of the shutdown where they won nothing, they got none of their goals. It was brutal over in the Senate. It it was the animosity and bad blood was at an all time high, it seems like. In the Republican Party in the House, they had just been defeated soundly. And you know what? They could not have been more unified and happier if you go back and look at the coverage. And so the question is, it's not like they were saying, oh, how dare you, John Boehner? How dare you like allow for a vote that would allow for a debt ceiling increase and to fund Obamacare? Like You lied to us. None of that, because Boehner fought with them. He, he, he didn't agree with them at all, but he let them try to win. And they all had this process, at least internally within the party, and they all went along. And then in the end, when they fell short, they fell short. Because I don't know anybody. I've never met somebody. I don't know about you. I've never met a single member of Congress or a voter, for that matter, who wants their member, that person, to have dictatorial control over the government. I've never found that person. And what we're saying is that they just want the opportunity to have to fight. And if we say it's about outcomes and they just want to like wield this power and they and they want to enforce their goals on everybody else, what we're saying is they're saying we want to have dictatorial control of the government. I don't think liberals want that. I don't think that concern, they may wish they had it. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think there are a lot of people who think that they're in the majority and they should win. But conservatives don't, they see themselves as conservative Republicans. Yes, they're in the majority, but they're in the majority, but with a large number of members who disagree with them. The same with liberal Democrats. There's a sense of these intra-party divisions being very real for outliers in their parties. And so I think that that, the kind of appeal to party isn't as powerful 
as it is to others in the party. And that's why I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens uh, with Jim Jordan on the House floor with these more moderate members. And by the time you listen to this podcast, you may already know the answer to that. But I I think if if we are going to wrap up here, I think we can say a few things. One, organization matters. Two, procedure matters. And three, nothing stays the same. Congress is constantly changing. There are many ways in which Congress can organize itself. The speaker is sometimes powerful, sometimes less powerful. The committees are sometimes more powerful. And the moment that we're in is but a transitory moment and something else will follow. And someday people will be writing about this moment saying, gosh, things were really different then. Think of those guys at Politics in Question. They really had it all figured out. But no, nothing is nothing is written. That's the beauty about America. We don't have rulers here. We can do what we want. The possibilities are endless, and that also applies to institutional organization. All right, let's go see what happens. Woo-hoo. This all has right. been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.